You're listening to an ACA podcast. Um, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and I'd like to sincerely thank you all for joining us this evening for the launch of ACA's 2018 lecture series, Uncommon Knowledge, which focuses on artists, their special interests, and topics that inspire their art and thinking. Featuring a transgenerational cast of Australia's most interesting and intriguing contemporary artists, Uncommon Knowledge brings together elements of history, philosophy, lifestyle, sound studies, sexuality, cultural politics, and much more to inspire and challenge us to think differently about society and the world around us. We are especially excited and honoured to welcome Bill Henson this evening to inaugurate the series with his talk titled The Wilderness Within, The Body as the Last Frontier. To begin with, I would sincerely like to acknowledge the Boomerang traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. I'd like to thank um, and welcome our return season pass holders. The lectures will continue on a monthly basis between now and November, accompanied by a unique cocktail created by our partners Starwood Whiskey and the Melbourne Gin Company. There are still season passes available for the series, and next month we will have Ronnie Van Hout, who will speak about UFOs. And then Fiona Hall will follow with a focus on surveillance, immigration, nationalism, and Brexit. Before introducing Bill, I'd first like to thank the Melbourne Gin Company for creating a bespoke cocktail for us this evening. Bill is a noted gardener, so it's very appropriate the MGC have created a blend of gin, rose vermouth, um, pomegranate and rhubarb with thyme as a garnish. We also acknowledge ACCA's event partners, the City of Melbourne and CAPI, as well as our media partners, the Saturday Paper, 3RRR and Broadsheet. And we equally acknowledge and thank our presenting partner, Abercrombie and Kent, the luxury travel company who offer unique adventures and bespoke cultural tours and holidays around the world. Abercrombie and Kent, as an aside, are also partnering with us on our current exhibition, Dwelling Poetically, Mexico City, a case study. Many of you might be interested to know that in celebration of Mexico City and our current exhibition, Abercrombie and Kent are offering a very special prize valued at almost $20,000, which is an unforgettable 10-day experience for two people hosted by Abercrombie and Kent visiting Mexico City and Oaxaca on an arts and cultural tour that will take in Mexico's renowned Day of the Dead celebrations as well. So I urge you to visit our website for further details on how to enter and wish you all the best of luck with your entries. It now gives me great pleasure to welcome and introduce Bill Henson. Bill Henson is one of Australia's leading artists whose photographs have been exhibited extensively in Australia and internationally over the past 45 years. In 1995, Bill represented Australia at the Venice Biennale with his celebrated series of large-scale cut-screen photo collages with striking graphic compositions made from photographic fragments applied with adhesive tape, pins and glassine. Bill presented his first solo exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria in 1975. And last year, he was honoured with a major solo exhibition in the 19th century Salon Galleries at the NGV and his work can be found in pretty well every major public collection in Australia and many institutional collections around the world. This evening's lecture is especially timely as Bill puts the finishing touches on the installation of a new exhibition opening at Tolano Galleries this Thursday. 
I'll now hand over to Bill Henson, who will speak about his lifelong interest in the body and the human figure, and much in between. There will be time for questions at the end of the lecture, and our curator of public programs, Annabelle Lacroix, will have a roving microphone for um, audience questions. So please, um, I think Bill's very happy to take questions um, following the lecture and, and following his talk. And um, please join me in welcoming Bill Henson and his lecture, The Wilderness Within, The Body as the Last Frontier. Thank you, Max, for that uh, generous introduction. Uh, I've been somewhat distracted this week. I'm having a fight with my local council, and it leads me to sort of quote one of my favourite authors who I'm going to refer to a little bit this evening, Elias Canetti. No one understands the subterranean spade work of anger. So with that in mind, what I'm going to do is run through a series of uh, rather crazy dot points and uh, see where I go with this. Now, in November I had to go to Paris and London, which sounds very kind of, you know, pretentious, but I have a mad publisher in Paris called Pierre Bessard, and uh, he's sort of rather like a Clouseau, Inspector Clouseau figure, and a kind of uh, crazy guy who comes up with ideas such as, the next book, you know, it's going to have a glass cover, hmm? <laughs> you, know, you know, it will be fantastic, you know, this sort of thing. And he does sound exactly like that when he speaks. Um, and Pierre and I work together, and I have a, a wonderful um, uh, husband and wife couple in London that I go to see too, who I publish books with, and I've been doing mostly books in recent years rather than commercial shows. Haven't shown here, I think, commercially for about seven years. But uh, Pierre's very interesting, and he, uh, his first book he said, you know, we're sitting somewhere, I don't know where we were, at Paris Photo, and he says, I think, you know, the pictures speak for themselves, you know, and uh, words, always you pick up the book, and, He's like, a, he's like a perfect French copy of uh, Gerhard Steidl, if any of you know Steidl and Steidl's books. We don't need the words. I think we have no words. And then he goes, no words, you know. No tattle, no assor, nothing, just the ISBN very small. We have to have, you know. He said, he's kind of, can you imagine? He says, all these people everywhere. I've just seen this great book. Who's it by? I don't know. What's it about? I don't know, he said. Ah, it will go crazy on social media. I have to be two years ahead, he says. Like this. <laughs> so, you know, so I was on, the, on my flight, on my Emirates flight to, to see him in November and then to go and see um, uh, Rachel and Gregory, Stanley Barker, who are my publishers in London, who are quite different from Pierre. Um, I call them the kids because they're still in their 20s, uh, but they're brilliant publishers. And I looked, flicked on the entertainment system in the... Um, you know, thing just to sort of, you know, pop to Judy because I really want to go to sleep, and uh, watched this film, which was called A Ghost Story, uh, which had um, an Amer a new American film. Some of you have probably seen it. I hope you have. Very, very interesting film. And by the time I'd finished watching it a third time, I'd sort of fell asleep and woke up in Dubai. But for those of you who haven't seen it, basically... Uh, I think it's Ben Affleck or the other Affleck in a sheet as a ghost with two black circles for eyes standing, looking at what's going on after he's dead moving through the landscape very, very interesting lighting 
very interesting soundtrack. And the film became quite hypnotic. But what struck me most about it, and I thought to myself at the time, this, and then I watched it on the way back too, and I thought, this is the most interesting thing to come out of, like a whole other way of making a film and a whole other sensibility. The most interesting thing I'd seen since the first time I saw um, David Lynch's movie cut uh, for Twin Peaks, which they showed here at the Melbourne Film Festival. Some of you might have even been to that. Up, it was up in Burke Street somewhere. And the film, the structure of the film that David Lynch made just went up like this to a point and just ended in midair and left everyone kind of like speechless and without breath. It was a, a brilliant structure and then turned into the series we all know and now it's another series and on it goes. But this, this ghost story was the first time I'd seen something that really was quite different to everything else that was being done. What struck me about it, as I said before, was how expressive this person in a sheet, a white sheet top to bottom, with these two blank black eyes could be by virtue of their movement, subtle movement, standing still, standing in the corner of the room, not visible to the, those still living who were you know, bustling around doing things in the same room, just standing there. And it reminded me of something. It reminded me of a show that I was involved with at uh, Los Angeles County Museum in 2000. They did a big millennial photography show which was called Ghost in the Shell. And it was the ghost in the shell, the idea of the ghost in the shell, that made me think about what I'd like to talk about tonight. And that is this whole sort of interplay between what Francis Bacon calls that vast inland sea of the subconscious and everything else, where the skin ends, where your skin ends and the rest of the world starts, and how that interplay is, is made compelling through works of art of various kinds. So, the thing that strikes me about enduring representations uh, is that they tend to universalise the subject, even as they elicit an intimacy and, you know, thus make em em um, empathy possible, which is, of course, you know, one of the primary things that, one of the primary gifts of, of art to, to civilisation. Um, but to make us more alive and heighten our sense of being part of a deep continuum and culture not being outside nature, all of this, you need something which has some kind of a universalised, non-specific, anonymous, ambiguous presence. And at the same time, something that's very, very intimate. It's a great challenge, particularly with photography. I don't want to talk about photography too much. I think photography is pretty boring, generally. But um, it's a great challenge for photography because photography depends so much upon the evidential authority of the medium. We come at, you know, condition to every picture. Uh, firstly, is evidence of something. The evidential authority precedes that individual reading of the subject or the you know, objects in space, events in time, whatever they are. And yet, it is possible, I believe, I still think occasionally, to hang on to that dumb veracity, that kind of prescriptive, essential nature of the photograph, and at the same time skip lightly over it into the world of suggestive, to make something which is suggestive. Until it skips into the suggestive, it can't really function in the, the most interesting ways that, that other art forms function. When you think about it, you know, you don't go to the theatre for evidence of something specifically. You do receive it in a way, watching, you know, King Lear staring and going, look, those lips, those lips or something. It does become intimate and it does become specific. But we, we are conditioned to go into a novel or to, to listen to a piece of music 
and to be taken on a journey, and it's a journey uh, of, of the imagination. Photography has this other thing that we must go through first before we can go on that journey. So this person standing there in this white sheet with these two black eyes, uh, just blanks, was, made a real impression on me because of the way it was so expressive and yet so completely anonymous at the same time. Um, I suppose what I'm getting at is that meaning comes from feeling, not the other way around. And, you know, we feel with our whole bodies. And so the important thing is that you can think... A lot of things are apprehended very, very powerfully, but we don't fully understand why, and we can't see the parameters. And that's the beginning of what's interesting for me in art. But it depends upon the body. It doesn't depend upon the intellect. I think that comes much later. I think we absorb everything. Um, all of the basic conditioners of life on Earth, you know, gravity, velocity, temperature, barometric pressure, the scent of things, through our whole bodies, you know, our largest organ, our skin. And a little bit of it finds its way up to the top where we can deliberate and consider and intellectualise. But when you consider that massive amount of information, it's incredible just how the, what Nietzsche called the great intelligence of the body determines, you know, what we think we know about things. So um, maybe what I should say following that is that what becomes interesting to me is how, with all of that, we suggest that interior world, um, how we suggest it through a piece of sculpture, a block of rock or a lump of clay or you know, a video installation or whatever, a painting, that interior world. How do you kind of hang on to the veracity, the physicality and suggest the abstract, universalise the subject? And that's why I'm interested in trying to sort of photograph the body and the face because it's not that I want to let go of the specifics, that tender, breathing, proximate individual presence that a model has in front of the camera, but unless I can also make that somehow unknowable, millennially distant and, uh, you know, a kind of an unbridgeable gap, then it's never going to kind of rise above familiarity, mere familiarity. What we're looking for really here is, is true intimacy, profound intimacy. Um, I can give you an example of what I mean by that very clearly. When you're lying on the carpet at home listening to the, your favourite piece of music, something that really moves you, something that's compelling, it's an intensely intimate thing, but it's not in any way familiar. You know, I mean, it could be Mozart, it could be the Dead Kennedys, whatever it is. Um, it's not something that... Uh, thank you. That... Um, is in any way familiar. It rises above familiarity. Um, but our sense of, you know, bodies, you know, the body's passage through space is equally, you know, disturbing and interesting as its passage through time is. I, many years ago, read this very strange thing called Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler. Um, Spengler was one of those thinkers who came up with a whole system for understanding the world. And he had a lot of very strange and very interesting ideas. He was kind of um, hijacked by the Nazis and, you know, had a bit of a bad rap there for a while, but most of what he had written was, you know, in place well before, well, even just the end of the Weimar Republic, really. Uh, there was sort of, you know, the general sort of tend to trend toward eugenics, which was happening right around the world at the time. There's a bit of that in what he wrote, but it's not something he was interested in. He had all of this stuff about different periods in history having different colours. So, for example, you know, the Dutch merchant classes that, let's say, Simon Sharma work, writes about in, you know, The Embarrassment of Riches, 
time of Rembrandt, you know, it's that 1606 to 1669, was a, was a deep brownish colour. In the age of the Enlightenment in France, think about, say, you know, uh, Watteau, you know, 1750, 1790, it was a bluish green colour. That was the colour of the time. So he had all these strange systems and ways of looking at things. But he also wrote very interesting, interestingly about the passage of time and the effect on the public imagination. He said things like, when you look at the Elgin marbles, as he called them, he said, would they have the same effect on us now as they, as they, you know, as they did or as they would if they were in perfect condition, perfectly intact, brightly painted? I think not. He went on to this sort of long sort of dissertation on how the fragment you know, carries with it this sort of you know, very powerful memento mori and affects us very, very deeply. It's the disappearance of things. He had something else interesting to say about sculpture. And this all has to do with the interior and the exterior world. He said, have you ever noticed when you look at Greek sculpture, their eyes, the eyes are always looking inward? I mean, it's kind of mad, but it's really interesting to me. It's, it's somehow, he's saying, there's a block of rock, there's this bust or this head or this body, but it's suggesting the interior world, not the exterior world. Very interesting writer, quite, quite strange. Um, he had a lot of other things to say, but um, those things stick in my memory particularly, the colour of a particular period, epoch, and, um, and what's how sculpture functions. Um, Canetti, another writer of mine, Elias Canetti, Nobel Prize winner, um, rough contemporary of Sigmund Freud, a bit younger than Freud, Jewish, got out of Vienna uh, around the same time as Freud, lived in London, had an affair with Iris Murdoch, for any of you who read Iris Murdoch, long dead now, but Canetti had a lot to say about the fragment and about beauty and about the disappearance of things and the reappearance of things and how forms and objects, you know, had an easier time of being beautiful if they'd been missing and then found again. In other words, they disappeared into the imagination. It's a bit like the Library of Alexandria. This thing had disappeared, and then it had been found again, and that heightened its sense of beauty. It, it sharpened our sense of the tenuous grasp we have on these things. Um, it's a very interesting sort of way of thinking about bodies. Um, in the end, of course, they come down to speaking, all of these authors come down to speaking about beauty and about attraction. Now. My idea about it's pretty basic. I think, you know, the universe runs on attraction, whether it's two molecules in a vacuum all the way up to an episode of Hollywood Housewives, it's all about attraction. Um, a friend of mine, old mate of mine, Peter Sheldahl, who now writes for The New Yorker, has a, a wonderful saying about this in one of his books. I don't think it's Hydrogen Jukebox, I think it's Let's See, one of his more recent books. Peter writes for The New Yorker, he's an art critic in New Yorker now. But he's a, he was a poet, came in the long line of great poets that the Americans had the good fortune to have taken interest in the visual arts, starting way back with people like Frank O'Hara, then John Ashbery and Peter Sheldahl sort of fell into that category. Used to write for the Village Voice and various seven days art criticism and whatnot. But Sheldahl had this wonderful line. He said, beauty makes a case for the sacredness of something and then wins that case suddenly and irrationally. Wonderful writer. And this is the sort of thing that makes me think about the body, that great intelligence of the body, you know, what makes one brushstroke compelling and another brushstroke of no consequence? You could call it aesthetics, but it's something that you react to with your whole body. It's not something that can be kind of contained, if you like, by the intellect completely. There's a wonderful book on this, actually, um, called The Greeks and the Irrational by, by Dodds. It goes into this quite a bit in relation to the Greek culture. Um, there's an interesting sculpture at the Metropolitan Museum in New York 
which is uh, a pillar, a long pillar uh, with an animal sitting on top of it. And the, 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 the real sculpture of the animal is in a, in a case next to it, but, and a cast is up on top of this pillar. But um, the inscription says, you know, you know, the parents of so-and-so set me up. You know, the fact that the way in which they wrote on this piece of stone was to say that oh, the stone has, you know, is a sentient being almost, you know, is something, is someone, has identity. This thing goes back and forth all the time. Of course, in you know, a lot of many Oriental cultures, Japanese cultures and so forth, there's the, the Taoists and the, this, all these different people who think of things in terms of, um, I think, what they call mono no aware, which is you know, um, being, if not sentient being. You know, rocks, of course, have that. You look at Japanese gardens and so forth and you understand what they're talking about. Um, but anyway, all of these things are about somehow making the point where the body ends, the external world ends and the internal world starts, less certain. It's a kind of thing that I like to sort of try and do with photography, is to have the surface of the human body or the face uh, and to have all the information, to hang on to that information and yet at the same time um, make the point at which one thing becomes another thing uncertain, unstable. It's just, an, it, to me, it, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Um, in music, I can think of a wonderful example. I've, you know, there are, there are all kinds of wonderful music, but in music, I think one of the great examples is Alban Berg's Violin Concerto. Um, he wrote that um, as a kind of, well, it's to the memory of an angel subtitled, and it's basically about a young girl called Manon Gropius, who was a daughter of uh, Gustav Mahler's wife when she was married to Walter Gropius, the architect. And she died, she died um, quite young, at the age of about 19, I think. And Berg, always you know, a friend of the family and a, a student of Mahler's and so forth, uh, was profoundly disturbed and upset, although Berg was deeply in love with his own wife and Berg's letters published by Faber are a wonderful, you know, a wonderful kind of um, catalogue of the, the deep uh, affection and love that Berg and his wife had for each other. Nevertheless, he was very, very moved and he wrote this violin concerto. Uh, there are many great recordings of it going back over the last sort of 60 or 70 years, but there's one particular recording I like, um, and uh, it's at Seiji Ozawa uh, with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and uh, who's the, uh, the violinist, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, but what happens in this piece of music is, it's in two parts, or two movements. The first is basically an explication of music of this young girl, this young life, life ahead of her, the kind of joy of life, all of the kind of you know, the young maiden before death comes along, if you think of that kind of tradition in European culture. And the second half becomes a battle. It's death and the maiden. It becomes this struggle for life, life against death. At a certain point near the very end, it starts to go calm. It's like a res there's a resignation, as, as though the body knows, even before the mind has become aware of it, that it's going to die, and the body starts to prepare itself. And about five, four minutes before the actual piece of music ends, it's probably half an hour in total length, the music has its metre, has its kind of structure and has its, for want of a better word, beat. It is structured very, very precisely. But from nowhere comes this kind of deep rumble of a sort of a timpani. And it's a very, very deep rumble. It just comes up and then it goes down again. And it has no apparent structure to the rest of the piece of music. It's the most unearthly thing. And it's sort of like the, the sort of the underworld sort of coming up 
and then receding again. It's quite stunning. And it takes something which could be seen as a, almost a linear narrative progression of you know, a young child growing up and then being taken too early by um, illness and death. But it adds this otherworldliness to it. And this whole thing of sort of sliding back and forth in and out of life, back and forth from the, you know, the conscious daylight to sort of the underworld and so forth, it's all a part of destabilising and making uncertain where we end and everything else starts. Um, you know, capturing an echo of this ebb and flow between interior and exterior worlds is really compelling in the Berg. Um, you, you should listen to it, it's quite something. Um, what it does in a way is it reintroduces us to the deep strangeness of the world and that's a cardinal, a cardinal quality or requirement of great art um, and we experience it with our whole bodies, not just our, our intellects. As Einstein, Albert Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. And um, to give it a local tinge, our founding director of the National Gallery in Canberra, James Mollison, always used to sort of say, you know, the best experience you can have is to go away from a work of art with more questions than you came in with. So Jim was pretty good with that sort of thing. You know, I'd like to say that it is, you know, that thing which slips away from thought that animates our speculative capacity and causes us to wonder that really is compelling in most artwork. So trying to find a form outside our bodies through which to articulate this, perhaps you know, powerfully apprehended but not fully understood feeling, is often through an absence, carefully modulated, of any specific information, that is. And that's what makes things most compelling. You know, it's, it's there, but it's perhaps not there. Michelangelo is another good example if we want to think about the history of art. The Academy Slaves, which some of you might have studied, um, the bearded, beardless, blockhead and cross-legged slaves. Um, there's an ongoing conversation between uh, Michelangelo experts and it's been going for years and all of the old great scholars like de Tolnay and everyone else about whether these figures are emerging from their block of stone or going back into the stone because they're unfinished. I mean unfinished in, in that they're partially buried in the blocks of stone. And uh, there's no kind of conclusive argument that, you know, that was intentional or not intentional as far as the sculptor was concerned. But it's that transitional thing, the fact that, you know, they could be kind of going back into the stone or coming out of the stone that makes them so compelling. Much more interesting as sculptures than the dying slave and the rebellious slave, the two pieces in the Louvre, which you've probably seen. Similarly, that gathering sense of disbelief I have when experiencing... Um, you know, I want to say, what have I written here? I want to say the space between the notes, the silences indeed in, you know, certain pieces of music, depending upon the interpretation. It's a conversation that musicians have all the time, but it's incredibly important. It's the silence between the notes, that modulation that actually opens up the space for your imagination as much as the notes themselves. There's a particular um, recording that Claudio Abbado did of uh, Mahler's Ninth Symphony and uh, near, it, uh, near its conclusion, the music slows down. The effect isn't that the tempo is slowing down, but somehow the music seems to be drawn out. And you feel as though between the notes you could go out for dinner and come back again. It's incredible. Um, what he's done is created almost a new piece of music. He's reinvented the music. He's made the music strange again. I thought I'd heard every recording of this symphony known to man from the official Bruno Volta one, you know, through to all the other great conductors, Kubelik and Karajan and whoever else. Um, 
you know, there's this thing that happens that stretches out. There's a sort of a completely unconventional, uh, to me, by that I mean not something that sort of breaks convention but almost ignores convention in a recording he makes of Bruckner's last symphony, Unfinished Ninth Symphony. Uh, at the end of the passage there are, the, there are horns, there's brass, mainly French horns. And I can remember, you know, I play this to my musician friends, but I had a, an old mate of mine, Barry Humphreys, up in the studio once we see each other whenever he's in town. And I said, have a listen to this. And we put on the, the very end of this Bruckner Ninth, just the last sort of 10 minutes of it. And at the end of it, these French horns come in and they just keep going. It's completely unreasonable. It's fantastic because it's sort of, there's no reason for it to stop. It just seems it, it's somehow more compelling because it ignores all of the formalities and all of the precedents that have been set by other, other conductors. And we're sitting there and sort of like looking at each other like this and this just kept going and going and going. Very beautiful, but basically completely unconventional. So I think that thing of ignoring convention is another aspect of what's make, what makes a lot of art very compelling. You just forget you know, the boundaries. You forget about where the parameters are. Um, that's a very interesting part of it for me too. Um, now why objects? Let me talk about objects. Why objects interest me so much is that with objects, they occupy the same space as your body. You know, that great intelligence of the body that Nietzsche, of Nietzsche that I mentioned before, um, the way in which physical things suggest abstract things, what makes a sort of a painting compelling or a, a block of stone compelling is what really fascinates me. Um, there's, a, there's a great Rembrandt in the St. Petersburg in the Hermitage called the, The Return of the Prodigal. What's strange about spending a week looking at that painting, as I did a few years ago, is the fact that at a certain point, you can't figure out where you end in the paint, where you, what you can, what to make of it, what to think of it. You're feeling a lot, but you can't figure out what to actually think about it. The paint seems like a physical manifestation of the pathos depicted in the scene of the return of this great sort of biblical scene. It's like the, it's like, it's no longer the iconography. It's no longer, you know, what you understand about the story. It's as though the paint itself is this physical manifestation of this great tragedy. It's quite something. Um, and it's something that you feel with your body. Your body understands it before the intellect grasps what's actually happening, I think. Um, so again and again, it's, it's almost as though um, that great intelligence is at work and ahead of you and bits of it, only bits of it, get up to the top where you, you can sort of have a good time with them. Um, I suppose we, we call it an, an intuitive intelligence. I mean, I sometimes say to people, look, you know, there's a civilizational logic, which is we all, you know, stop at a red light and go at a green light, and then there's a deeper logic or an intuitive intelligence that works, which we don't actually understand completely. But this is central to that process of, you know, universalizing the subject matter. When you think of um, authors, Thomas Mann has Aschenbach die on the beach at the Lido. Um, in Death in Venice, and he has him staring into what he calls an immensity of richest expectation. And it's exactly the same thing that's happening when you look at Watteau, the great French painter, Age of the Enlightenment painter, when his dreamers gather for their embarkation for Scythera. You know, that immensity of expectation is exactly what Watteau so exquisitely paints and places in the distance behind them. And it makes the world strange again. It makes it unreal. 
So you have the physical detail, and he's an, you know, an exquisite miniaturist, for those of you who've looked at uh, Watto's paintings carefully. But somehow, it's the unreality of the scene that carries, carries you into the picture and opens up your, the space for your imagination. Um, coming back to Elias Canetti, you know, he can articulate with all the poetic, poetic economy of a great writer exactly what Rothko is experiencing. Let's bring it into the 20th century. Uh, Mark Rothko, toward the end of his life, had become quite close to the um, great uh, New York critic Dory Ashton. Dory Ashton, a very famous book called The New, New York School. But toward the end of his life, he was doing these, you know, very big, very dark, kind of, some would say gloomy. I mean, the English didn't like them very much when they got a room full of them donated to the Tate. But uh, people like Keith Vaughan and many other witty writers said, God, no wonder he killed himself when they saw him. But, these paintings sitting in Rothko's converted carriage house with this crepuscular light coming down were there about a week before he died um, and Dory Ashton went to visit him and she wrote a very beautiful piece which was published in Art International a lot long after he died. But he used to sort of get excited and she, she took all these notes of what he was saying and she'd say, you know, when he was really worked up he'd say, I don't know what this is but it's not a painting. And so it was about the, you know, the unness of it almost. And this goes on through music and poetry all the time. Canetti, I mentioned before, has a beautiful way of describing. He says, the hopeful things in every system are those things that have been left out. It's the space that opens up for us. That's what's important. So I wonder how much sense some of this is making, but you know, this is what it is. I'm trying to pin things down very, very hard. Um, I had a meeting in, when I was over there, yeah, over in London in November, I had a meeting with a, a, a German film producer. We've got this mad project we're working on. But um, I love um, this guy, we're both about the same age, about 62, and he's been, he has a, his own production company. He's sort of worked with a lot of very interesting directors like Herzog and, um, you know, Vin Venice and these guys. But he, um, they resort to very interesting expressions, you know, with their English, even though they're articulate. And they like to talk about things like the deep emotionality of something, you know. And he was talking about this deep emotionality of thing because we, we, he's, he's, he's interested as a documentary filmmaker with what's happening to contemporary art and what's happening to people and why contemporary art is the way it is and what's going on. You know, he, he has this thing where he says, um, you know, all across Europe and in Germany, the galleries are packed, packed with people and in the UK and US everywhere, packed, he said. And you know, they are starving to death. And I'm like, this, I'm going like, starving to death, yeah. They can't feel anything anymore. Everything is ironic. Everything is a piss take. It's, it's a disease, you know, this sort of... So we had this kind of three or four hour conversation, got back on the plane and went back to Berlin. But the thing is, this is a project, for, this is a project he's working on. Very, very interesting. But he reminded me of a wonderful documentary, getting back to music. Uh, uh, Peter Rommel, his name is. He's, he's a very interesting guy. But um, and where they use these expressions to talk about things. Um, there's a great uh, now dead German conductor called uh, Carlos Kleiber. His father, Eric Kleiber, left Europe when uh, the Nazis came in because he wouldn't have anyone tell him what to conduct. So they weren't Jewish, but he went off and conducted in South America and the U.S. and everywhere else. Carlos Kleiber, a great conductor. Um, they talk about him having this deep emotionality. And there are a number of documentaries that have been made about him over the years since his death, and some while he was alive, of course. But interviewing the musicians who, who played underneath him, is very, there are some very interesting things that they say. 
Um, there's a particular, he, he conducted uh, Tristan at, at Bayreuth and, and a number of other places. And the, the musicians would say, you know, um, we were playing and playing, and these were the musicians from either the Vienna Philharmonic or the Bayreuther Wundfunk or one of those, you know, fabulous European orchestras. And then we were aware of the fact that we were making this sound. We were making this incredible sound. And it was like we weren't making it, the sound was making itself. And then they'd go, yeah, and we never heard that again. We never heard that. We never heard that sound again. And it was just the orchestra had turned into this animal. It was just breathing like one animal. When you talk to classical musicians, they say, you know, if you're lucky a few times in your life, something happens and everyone is breathing in unison, the music is being made, the music is making itself. So this was something that happened with Cliver from time to time, this deep emotionality. And um, very eccentric character. And the, 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 the theatrical director of the, um, the Vienna Opera is interviewed and he sort of says, you know, because Kleiber never wanted, he started to sort of stop conducting. They couldn't get him out of retirement. He said no to everything all that, and finally every once in a while he'd come out. And, and this guy, after he was dead, said, you know, these geniuses often withdraw from the world before they actually leave. And uh, it's an interesting observation um, because they're, they're, not, they're in a parallel universe sometimes. They're not connected to things in the way that they should be. Um, this great, uh, great oboist, retired oboist, sort of said, you know, it's very interesting. People expect these, and this is a very interesting comment in the light of the hashtag MeToo stuff, actually. Um, people expect these artists to conjure the most incredible things from their imaginations, and then to go home, he said, and then to go home and be a nice neighbour and a perfect husband. I can't imagine. <laughs> you know, it's without judgement. It's a very interesting observation. And there's a lot of stuff like this about Kleiber. You know, um, he ran out of the, the uh, rehearsal hall. He, he was rehearsing in the music for Ein, and he ran across the road and assaulted a woman. What he did was he grabbed some woman who was a complete stranger and gave her a passionate kiss, kiss like this and then ran back into the rehearsal like mad. You know, a complaint was made, sort of all sorted out at some point. But uh, just, you know, I, I don't know what you say about that sort of thing, but the musician's observation is quite good, I think, you know. You, you know, you're meant to be like this, but then you're meant to produce this. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. So they have one foot inside what we'd call the kind of civilizational, logical world, stop at a red light, go, and, and the other foot is somewhere else altogether. Um, anyway, uh, where do I want to go from this? The next sentence, of course, in that famous uh, Einstein uh, thing about uh, the beauty of mystery is he who... He, he to whom the emotion is, emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause and wonder and stand in awe, wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Now, there are other passages in the same tract of Einstein's where he goes on to sort of say these are things which can only happen through the body. Now, for an intellect like that, it's very interesting. But he talks about it a bit. Um, I want to bring this up to our time and talk a little bit about the digital age and the effect that it has on the body and consequently upon the mind and the intellect. Um, there's much about digital imaging technology that I, I kind of describe as the compression industry. Um, you know, the Pixar of the imagination. Uh, and generally speaking, I prefer, you know, AR, actual reality, to VR. But um, how does the removal of, let's say, a thousand shades of grey and the replacement with a hundred or ten or just two have an effect on the imagination and what happens to the body and you know how does the body kind of convey information to the mind through this um, I think it's a very very important thing because um, 
you know, mass production and technology reflect society and society reflects, you know, back and so forth. They're a pair of mirrors. And I think that there's a lot going on here which is um, disconcerting because with an increasing contrast comes a loss of information. Um, the reason I said a thousand shades of grey, of course, is because most of life, as we know, is grey. There's a little bit of black at which one end, a little bit of white at the other end. But as the compression industry gets into it, when you look at particularly, well, it doesn't have to be music, it can be digital imaging technology or whatever else, there's always an increase in contrast and a loss of subtle, ambiguous tone. Now, this is really important because, you know, it's the ambiguity and the uncertainty, it's the grey areas of life that give us the space in which our imaginations can go for a wander. Um, if you like, it's a, you know, it's a, that vast an inland sea of, uh, Francis Bacon's drying up or being contained or dammed up. You know, I say this because really, you know, there's no uh, correct way of looking at Rembrandt and there's no correct way of reading Mo listening to Mozart. There's only your way. So um, when things become too contrasty, when things become too, too contained, I think the space that we have in which to sort of go on that journey of exploration is, is diminishes in some way. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology and I love you know, what we can do with computers and all the rest of it. But it strikes me that when I actually look at you know, the visual um, output of digital imaging technology, what I'm seeing is less and less information, less and less space. Um, you know, this becomes, a, you know, I suppose, a, you know, a reaction to the cultural landscape. But it's, it's an interesting thing because it's incremental and we don't realise it. And it sort of reminds me of, um, I think it was Woody Allen as a kind of TV producer in Annie Hall trying to explain to Diane Keaton that, you know, it, news producer, I think, look, it's OK, people have had their standards systematically lowered over the years, some line like that. And I think there's a, there's a, a double-edged sword where digital technology is concerned for that reason. Um, it's compression when I listen to sort of music and you listen to MP3s, MP4s, MP5s, you listen to what's happening to the music and you, you sort of, you can sense the bits that are missing. And the bits that are missing is this sort of atmosphere between the notes a lot of the time. Uh, there are a lot of kind of hi-fi boffins that argue about this all the time. But um, for a person who never threw out their vinyl records, um, it's kind of quite clear to my ear in a funny kind of way. Uh, so let's go on to something else. Um, I think, let me think here, I'm just, using my dot points as scatter cushions here, so I just have to... I think when we, um, you know, produce work that's too contrasty, one of the side effects of it is that it's like, it has a hit and run effect. You get it all straight away, and there's no lasting impression, or it doesn't continue on. You know, it's like that sort of subvert the dominant paradigm bumper sticker, you know, you kind of reach for your gun when you see that sort of thing. Um, when group, think, when group think takes over and the priority of individual experience is forfeited, we always come a step closer to that time, you know, Norman Douglas thing, favourite writer of mine, Norman Douglas, the termite ideal. It, makes, it gives you less space for yourself, less space to go on a journey in your own imagination with your body. Um, funny because Max originally said, oh, would you like to talk about gardens when I came in tonight? And I sort of said, oh, we'll see, you know, I don't know what I want to talk about really. Um, but of course, you know, garden is a definition of garden is man-made. Wilderness is natural. Yet, when we're at our most sublime, when we're 
we as individuals give free rein to our own imaginations. We are true to ourselves and realising that there is a civilizational logic, that thing I said before about green light, red light, and that there's a deeper logic. And that intuitive logic is the thing that is most civilising because it creates a sensitivity and it makes us more empathetic. So it's one of art's great gifts to society or to civilization. It's the idea that it, it, it puts you in a position to imagine the other person's position. If you like, it's a bit like the law. I think it's where the law and art overlap. You know, their, their ideal job is to create a deeper empathy so people can appreciate things. When we go to Shakespeare, you know, you feel for the characters and so forth. And um, in a way, the ideal job of the law is to sort of condition a society in a way where they, you know, they feel responsible for each other and can imagine what it's like being on the receiving end of whatever, you know, nefarious activities unfolded. Um, I suppose I want to go to a few questions soon, but um, I'll finish just with a few um, other little fragments that, you know, come back to me all the time, and uh, they have a, they have they've had a big effect on me over the years. There's a short film that the the people at Cinecittà made of the the funeral for, for Federico Fellini, the great Italian film director. It's very interesting, but they, you know, he was lying in state at Cinecittà and this this view, this huge cyclorama of the sky behind him, and for three days, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were filing past. They were in a train in the subway going out there, and they they spoke to this guy, and he said, you know, I just whistled this couple of little dun 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 to myself quietly, and the whole carriage looked up. He said, and it's as though, you know, the greatness of his art unified people. It unifies people. It puts people back together again. So um, I thought that's a, a beautiful way of describing it, unifying humanity. Um, but it's something that you feel before you understand what's going on. Um, for those jazz freaks here, I mean, when you listen to Art Tatum or Errol Garner or Ornette Coleman, um, how much of what's happening is, is their body and how much of it's their intellect? You know, it's really hard to kind of pick where one ends and the other starts. You know, I mean this by, you know, what, to what extent is the rhythm, intonation, infinitely complex syncopation, melodic diversion, inventiveness coming in as a result of a linear and clearly understood or even rationally perceived path of action? And to what extent is it, you know, the body, you know, acting almost automatically? It's a good question and I think that, the, I think that it's probably well and truly in the middle, if not more, at the body end of the spectrum, the more I listen to those sorts of things, especially improvised jazz and so forth. Um, I'd propose that, you know, just as with Abado and Bruckner, the body is, you know, through the process of pure activity, revealing things to us, and we find out what something is about through the business of trying to make it. I'm always saying to people, if you're not making your own stuff, you're missing out on the journey. And you can see it all the time. Because, you know, your whole body's not engaged with trying to kind of make something, whether it's high-tech or low-tech, a lump of clay or injection-moulded plastic or silicon, because you're not doing it yourself, all these things go wrong. The conversation that your whole body has with materials breaks down and you see things and you go like, it's the wrong size, it's the wrong shape. You know, kids in primary school ask these questions and they're great questions. You never get them at uni, but you get them from kids in primary schools. You know, how do you know what the right size is? How do you know what the shape, how do you know when something's finished? Like, great questions. But they have a lot to do with the body. And through the process of pure activity, things are revealed to us through the process of working. We find out what something is about 
to a significant extent through the process of trying to make it. So an old friend of mine, Ian Jenkins, who is the head of antiquities at the British Museum, Ian's a very funny guy, he's a, uh, a real old curmudgeon and um, suffers from Parkinson's quite, quite badly, but he always talks about it as techna, you know, eye, brain, hand. You need all of these things. You need the body, you can't just have, you know, the eye, you can't just have the mind at work, what the Greeks called techna. Um, here, <laughs> it's kind of a totally irrelevant, very funny story. He said, I want to show you something. We were going out for lunch one day. He took us down to the um, cafeteria of the British Museum and pushed the door open, and there were about 400, mostly fairly young people, all talking loudly and eating fast food and chips and everything. He goes, behold, the insects. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's uh, very good value here. He likes, to, he likes to sort of go into the Elgin Marble Room and we climb up on the statues and all the guards have to stand there. So he's very full of mischief, but uh, very interesting. But that techno thing is what he's talking about. It involves the body, and it's through the body that we come to understand the activity of the body, partly what it is about, what the thing we're making is about. So, you know, if you don't make your own stuff, as I said, you know, you're missing out on that journey. Um, I think... Um, you know, I'll finish by just making one quick point, uh, perhaps going back to the Vienna film. Like, the benefit of hindsight, you know, the past, after all, the future can't teach you anything. Um, it's an interesting point, though, I think. I always thought of science fiction, though, as a nostalgia for the future. I've never been into science fiction, but, you know, that's how it sort of rings in my head. Anyway, what I can say is that the greatest shake-ups, you know, occur, that, sh you know, change in likeness through the very unlikeliness and unreasonableness of a work of art. And that's the hallmark of interesting art. And it's something that your body usually apprehends before you have a kind of conscious thought about it. It's as though your body is reading the space between you and the object before you even understand what's happening. And that's why it's so important, and that's why I'm interested in objects, but it's why it's so important for people who make objects, whether we call them art or whatever, to do it, try and you know, execute that work and to engage with it fully and physically. Because um, you know, all that fashionable stuff of being, about being managerial and having the little end from the village knock it up for you means you miss out on a critical part of the journey. Um, it was fashionable in the 1960s. Sculptors used to ring through the measurements for their sculpture, they'd go to the foundry and they'd turn up to the opening in a bow tie. Sculpture was always wrong, you know. You know, you always, you've got to be hands-on. So look, um, I wander around, you know, the body and the mind and whatever else. I, I think what I might do is just sort of ask for a few questions now. And uh, I don't know how much of um, what I ever say makes much sense, but uh, at least hopefully we can bounce a few questions around the room. Oh, Max, cheating, Max is going to ask. Well, Bill, just really to get the conversation started, but um, I mean, you mentioned Peter Sheldahl's um, idea of encountering or discovering something suddenly and irrationally and perhaps if I could ask about your own process on the one hand you've got the mise-en-scene of or the staging of bodies and architecture and landscape and light in the production of the work and then you have the sort of post-production in the dark room or in the digital yeah so for you is that a rational discovery um, something that takes place in the scene or post-production or in, in both? Like. Oh, in both, in both. Because, um, you know, as I said earlier, culture is never outside nature. So even though you're in a so-called controlled environment, let's say the studio, where you're controlling, you know, lighting and the weather and all that sort of thing, and you just have, let's say, a, a single model in front of you, when you ask them to turn their head to the left, 
um, there are a million ways of doing it. And so exactly how that will affect you when you see it and exactly how they'll execute that movement, you know, well, the, the variations are limitless. And what I know I'm looking for, but what I, I can't think clearly about, but what I feel and then know about it later is that when I've got a 12-year-old boy um, who I, you know, someone I've been working with for a few years, and I just say, just turn your head to the, the left, that's an example, a perfect example of that wanting to hang on to that intimate, breathing, proximate sen you know, sense of a, of a living person right there. And at the same time, I want that turn of the head to feel like the Great Pyramids. I want this unbridgeable gap, this huge space to open up. And to have both of them simultaneously, you know, as though you've got all kinds of, I don't know, uh, you know, opposing forces in some kind of magical vibrating suspension, sometimes I try and describe it as. So that, so it's, it's, it's endless and unknowable at that level, even though you are giving directions, and I give thousands of very wooden instructions to my models. That's how I happen to work with them. People work differently. I don't say, imagine you're on a ship and it's a stormy... I just go, you know, I just basically go, you know, look at, look at the floor and look at the brick and then look at the next brick and look at the slow down. My business is about slowing them down. And the reason I slow them down is that the slower you get, of course, the closer you get to contemplate a contemplative state. And for contemplation, we need two things, stillness and silence. And of course, stillness and silence is where objects get their power from. I always think that basically I'm making objects that happen to be photographs on, you know, I'm always saying that, but that's how it feels to me. So you have this photograph captured on film. When, and the film has just developed, C41 process as a standard chemical process which just as a sign you, know, you have a standard and variable so you can do anything you like when you start to make the print but there's a whole other thing opens up so what what's it meant to look like you know you can modulate a million things the color the texture the scale the, you know the surface the the composition the formal qualities of the you know composition and whatever else um, I had a, a wonderful old sort of uh, scholar, a friend of mine called uh, Jean-Claude Le Magny, who used to be head of photography at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. We did a show back in the 80s, I think. And he was having a terrible problem because photographers around the world were making bigger and bigger prints. You know, the prints were getting bigger and bigger and the Germans were making really big prints. And, and you know, that was the great collection of photography in France and they had all everything going right back to Nieps and Nadar and everything else. All quite small. But this elderly, wonderful elderly gentleman sort of with the spectacles and the grey hair was saying, oh, everyone, they're all making bigger and bigger pictures. It's a nightmare for them to store and to handle. And he was saying, why are they doing this? He said, when you hold it here, it's the size of a house. You know, and so we got to have these conversations about you know proximity and you know what happens when you get closer to things they get bigger. Um, we had some mad mad chats, but all of these things are considerations at, at that printing stage when you are kind of actually making an, a thing of some kind, which happens to be a photograph. In my case, um, so to answer your question, it's going on all the time. It's going on all the time, and I will sometimes walk away from a photograph and I'll look look back at it from an oblique angle. And that'll tell me what's wrong with it. You know, if there's something that's, you know, parts of it are, you know, I can't let go of, but it's still, you know, it's not there. And, you know, this can go on for months and years in my studio. But what's wrong with it? Sometimes catching a glimpse of it in your peripheral vision tells you, uh, you know, as your body moves through space, through the studio, it's the wrong way. It should be vertical. It can be really dumb. It can be something like that. It's meant to be like that. Just turn it sideways. Or it can be, you know, I know what's wrong with this. It's, you know, there are all kinds of things wrong with it. So the process is, is continuous the whole time. You know, it's a, it's a great untidiness that settles upon the land. <laughs> so who's got another question? 
Anyone? You're all, you're all sort of, you know, shell-shocked by that kind of, you know, impenetrable monologue of uh, subordinate clauses you got before. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering what you think about the concept of um, the bodily reaction being uh, within or without a culture. So talking about, you know, we feel before we think and how much that feeling or the body's reaction is actually dictated by the culture that we live in. Mm. And you're talking about, um, you know, standing in front of the Rembrandt and feeling the paint having that reaction on you, but you have that reaction with your body because of your cultural like, education and how much that sort of, yeah, mm. is involved in the body and that sort of well, visceral feeling. Of well, of, co of course. I don't think there's, a, I don't think there's any, any um, meaningful way you can compartmentalise these things and say this is because of that and this is because of something else. Um, you know, it's like anything. The more familiar you become, the more information that you, you have, of course, you know, the more one can go on a kind of intellectual journey. But um, going back to the... Uh, the Rothko installation at the Tate, for example, I remember there was a lot of a lot of writing about that when it first went up in London many many years ago, and um, it fascinated some people there uh, because people would walk into the room and just burst into tears, and you know they didn't they'd never they didn't know who Rothko was, you know people would have this kind of purely emotional response to it, and I noticed standing in front of I was making some pictures in St Petersburg of. Uh, the Rembrandt painting, and I was sort of, you know, organised this thing with the museum. I was in one spot for about a week, and there's eight miles of corridors, and the busloads just go through and through. <coughs> but with certain certain rare artworks, and that was one of them. People had come down, and you know, it had flowcharts just like big museums tend to have these days. And people had come down, and they'd turn a corner, and a thousand times I must have seen it. They were in the middle of going you know, to each other, and they'd sort of forget what they were saying. They were in the presence of something which was just just exerting such power, but it was operating subliminally. They hadn't turned the corner. Oh my God! It's the return of the prodigal somewhere. You know, they just forgot what they were talking about, as if, you know, the general sort of feeling amongst the crowd in the room had become infectious, and they were affected by it. You know, it's it's a bit like walking into talking about architecture. The thing you notice that's interesting about a lot of architecture is that um, whether you're talking about sort of um, Melanesian and Micronesian longhouses or, you know, particular sort of sacred buildings in any culture, they tend to have a few things in common. They tend to have low light. And what that does, especially if you're walking in out of the daylight, is it makes people speak quietly and slow down and bring them a little bit closer to possibly some kind of comp contemplative state. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be Western culture. It happens in all cultures. Egyptian temples were like that too, you know. So some of these things are kind of universal, I think. And they just, they, don't, they just change and modulate depending upon the culture, I think. But there's no, I don't think there's a, a way of listing or, or divining any kind of percentage or degree to which it's one thing or the other. Of course, it depends on people's sort of personal experience and what the basic imagery might be doing to them emotionally, you know. And they may have no knowledge of the artist before they encounter that object in a room, so. It's a bit like talking about, oh, you know, so what are your inspirations, you know, like, and that's sort of, well, you know, I really like the coffee, I have not but, you know, you want to, you, you reach for a rising inflection because it's like saying, well, you know, to what extent is a walk down the street to the IGA for a carton of milk as opposed to sort of, you know, listening to Marla's Fifth Symphony, you know, you can make lists, but lists, and you can list all the books you're reading and everything else, that, you know. You know, your favourite jazz pianist, the thing is, it's still only a list. It never really explains the unique way in which these things amalgamate 
and the way in which that shapes, you know, your uh, thoughts and your feelings about, um, you know, a work of art you're either making or looking at. It's, um, that's why I said before, you know, there's no correct way of looking at Rembrandt. There's only your way, you know, so, yeah. Am I making any sense? Yes, there's another hand there. I have a habit of asking that question. See why. Hi. Um, uh, look, thank you for your remarks on um, bodily intuition. Oh, uh, th I thought that was fantastic. Um, you talk about um, uh, beauty and, and love and, and passion as, as a spark uh, for creating art and, and, and perhaps opening up that, that bodily intuition. And uh, it's said that um, the only love that lasts is unrequited love. Mm. And I think, oh, that's that's kind of handy as an artist because it sort of hangs around, it doesn't fleet. Um, is, that, um, is that something you have? Do you, do you, do you have that? Do you lean on that? Is that a tool? Is it, I'm not articulating yeah. myself quite properly. No, I know exactly. I think yeah. I know what you're talking about, or I hope I do. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you know, there's, there are many, many um, great... Well, we're, you know, seeing as we're using words to kind of have this exchange, many great writers and poets who, you know, who've said that longing is much deeper than love, you know, because you're, you're on a sort of a, you're in a dialogue with yourself. It's a solitary journey, you know. Um, I can think of a couple of my favourite poets, Kavafi, the 20th century Greek Alexandrian poet from Egypt. Uh, Kavafi's poems are sort of a, a laced with this sort of longing, you know. They have all these lines, like he's sitting in a cafe thinking to himself, you know, God, how the hours have passed, oh, how the years have passed. I mean, he's just, he's uh, brilliant, you know. There's a very famous poem by him called The God Deserts Antony. He was a classic scholar, classical scholar and so forth. And uh, I don't have it, so I'm, I think I'd wreck it if I tried to sort of, you know, um, do some messy extemporising with it but it's, it's very moving and it's all about the sense of longing and loss so I think that's definitely the case and, and it's particularly interesting where photography is concerned of course because we have lots of smart ass French theoreticians who've sort of said oh yes photo all photography is about death you know there's a lot been written about a lot um, so a lot of the POMO French stuff is about that but I, I think that there's certainly some, uh, some truth to that that longing is uh, deeper than love, sure, sure. That's how it, it seems that way to me, and it seems that way when I look at um, the way in which there's things can't be ultimately reconciled, and you see that in a lot of that's a that's a almost a cardinal quality of great art, but not necessarily um, be, because of anything particularly to do with love in the sort of the normal sense of love between two people, but it's like a longing for some other state that can't be sort of realised or occupied. Uh, I would say, for me also, a cardinal quality of great art is this sense of unlikeliness, a sense of the almost, you know, impossible thing that someone has brought some, this, whatever it is, out of the world of the imagination and into the physical world where you or I or someone else can touch it or smell it or see it. And it's the unlikeliness of that, which, you know, I was sort of referring to before, that can be the thing that takes your breath away. How has this been possible? You know, it's, 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 un, it's the unreasonableness of it and the unlikeliness of it. And I think really, in history, really great art for me is somehow right on the edge of existence. It almost, it could so easily not exist, but it just, it just, it, it's just inside the world. And that's what happens when you, for me, when I look at a really amazing sculpture or painting, or listen to a bit of music, film, you know, great film has it too. You know, you're watching 
you know, Ozu or Tarkovsky or pick your, you know, whichever director, it could be anything. And there are moments where, of course, if it's a time-based thing, the cinema is closer to music and, and theatre than it is to visual art by a long, a long way away from visual art, I think, film. Uh, it's time-based, but there are points where the film does effectively stand still, and that's great cinema, of course. It's one of the ways we sort of identify great cinema. So it's the unlikeliness of something which is still moving and has often a linear narrative progression too, seeming to be still at the same time. Funny story, actually, just to finish your question. Um, I was having um, dinner one night with Peter Sheldahl, who's an old friend of mine, the guy, the art critic from New Yorker. This is years ago. I think he was working for Seven Days Art Criticism at the time, and we were talking about the American dream. And Peter, who's he's, he's a beautiful writer to me, I think, you know, a, um, a wonderful poet. And he goes, yeah, you know, the American dream is to be kind of driving across the open landscape in a convertible with the top down, doing 100 miles an hour, an hour while remaining motionless. <laughs> you know, the impossibility of the American dream. Uh, great. So, are there any other questions? What kind of camera do I use? <laughs> Um, I might have a question for you. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the ideas of um, silence and stillness in your work yeah. and if um, those two concepts represent a kind of possibility of the impossible through your work. Uh, I think, you know, I start from the, from the, from the, uh, the point that it's always felt to me since I was a kid that it's about the sort of the spellbound, the daydreaming, the sort of place you can go to, you don't even know where you're going, that, open, that, that certain things open up for you. You know, it, you can be lying in bed listening to the radio, you could be you're standing in front of a picture. And it's always affected me that when you, when you sort of find you're being distracted in the French sense of being taken away to another place, that's when the work is uh, compelling for me. Um, and so, that's really not so much about specifically silence and stillness, but it's about how a work, a physical work of art, in our case visual art, how an object has been modulated, articulated, so that it creates that stillness. It, it commands the stillness and silence, if you like. It's the way it sort of charges the space around it. And that stillness and silence isn't mine, it's yours. You know, if I'm talking to school kids, I try to explain the priority of individual experience. I say, listen, I made a picture of a road going off into a dark forest, but when it really absorbs your attention, it, it's affecting, it's your road. It's no longer, my, it's not my road, it's your road. So it's about the, it's about the space that, that you can open up. And for that, the stillness and silence are kind of, you know, critically important. And that's sort of more about, that's probably more how I sort of see it in more the way I, I think about it, you know. It's the journey that you can go on, and of course it'll be totally different from everyone else's. And I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, I was Partially. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mentioned the impossibility of it because there's no such thing as silence as such, and also stillness within your body is really, really hard to um, have that complete mm. silence or complete stillness. Mm. Therefore, I thought it was interesting because there's that boundary, that boundary in your own work. There's always a sort of... Um, something that is unresolved, that is always mm. moving on, is not quite fully there. Yes, yes, well, that's, that's right. And, 
you know, all of the old cliches apply. I mean, with photography and the, the prescriptive, you know, nature of the medium, it's what goes missing in the shadows that animates the speculative capacity. So it's, it's about the loss of uncertainty and the loss of information. But just one thing that I don't know, I said before briefly when I work with models and so forth, the critical thing is, is, the, is the slow, slowing down, slowing everything down. And what happens when you slow things right down? Of course, you know, you achieve a certain amount of, you know, inactivity if we won't call it dead stillness. But what's happening is, you know, over four or five hours of a shoot, because they're long shoots usually, um, people's pulse rates do slow down. It becomes more of a meditative state. Um, and I, I could describe it this way. I want to get it to a point when I'm working with a person, let's say in a so-called controlled environment, where the smallest gesture becomes momentous, where just the mere act of breathing is somehow, you know, fabulous and strange and momentous. And that's why I was talking about the turn of a head and the, the pyramids. It's somehow you, you, you retain that incredible intimacy and fragility, but at the same time, you know, it's a million miles away. Elias Kennedy said something wonderful about distance in relation to society. Um, years ago, he was talking about, he said, just, just so many mad things and fabulous things this guy's written. But he said, um, you know, if we discovered, a, you know, if a newly discovered, hitherto unknown tribe of people in the jungle in South America, you know, the best place to document them from would be the moon, because perhaps only that distance might give us the respect we need to understand that we know nothing, you know. So fabulous, you know. So distance is very important, but, you know, you create distance in a studio as well. And so the subject remains unknowable. And that's what intimacy is so, that's why intimacy is so important and so different to familiarity and why there's, there's so much confusion, especially among young people about, you know, when they're sexting each other or getting into trouble for playing with their phones or whatever. There is a, there is a profound difference between intimacy and mere familiarity. And until they understand that, until, that's kind of, until they come around to realising what's happening, you know, you end up with these kind of, you know, little messes and, that, that occur in the media and wherever else. We have one last question over here. Sorry? I understand you're doing a short film for a building in Melbourne. Uh, um, not, you're not, not really a film, no. Okay. I was just going to ask how you're but, approaching but, that. Ah, well, um, it doesn't exist yet, but it, it, it won't be a film in that it won't be, there will be nothing recorded. So there'll be no recorded image on a disc or a piece of film or a hard drive. So it effectively won't exist as a film normally exists. <laughs> Do you like that? Yes. I'm just giving you a little bit, but not too, not too much. Yeah, so, so you have to, you'll have to figure out what kind of a film, that filmic experience that can be, but, you know, because it doesn't exist yet, you know, I can't really, uh, I'm not going to kind of explain it too much, but, but it, it won't exist in a way that it can be kind of screened anywhere on a machine. So, now, I could give a bit more of the, sh the game away by saying, you know, for those of you who are Kubrick fans, you might remember that fabulous scene in Barry Lyndon, with the um, camera lucida and the people in the dark room watching with the periscope what was happening in the park outside, you know, or, you know, for those of you who study, kind of, you know, take the, the modern science, pop, you know, 
endlessly popular Simon Sharma's take on, you know, um, Rembrandt and uh, the age of, 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 of riches and things like that in, in uh, the use of the camera and Vermeer and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's a little bit of what I'm thinking about doing. So it's, it's just light. Yeah. So it's not really a film. <laughs> anyway, well, it mightn't work. <laughs> you know, I just gave them an idea. I'm, they're, 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 I'm not giving them any objects. It's just a, it's an idea. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you, Bill, for your wonderful talk. And please join me in thanking Bill Hansen for this lecture. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.